Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and those six geese who do nothing but sit around a lane for 12 days. It's Thursday at three o'clock, you know what that means. Live from the Michigan State University campus, live from Chowchilla, California, and live from Germany on the other side of the pond, it's Tea with BBP. I'm your host, Bill Van Patten, AKA BBP, international superstar, and your own personal diva of SLA. And speaking of geese, here are my <laughs> softest down partners in crime, my wonderful co-hosts, Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Say hello. 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 Uh, I like Gell- being a soft goose. That's good. Yeah, soft as down little goose partner in crime you are. Um, Angelica, you are, you are Skyping in today from Germany, right? That is correct, yes. Well, pa- what part of Germany are you in? What town? Southwest Germany, close to Stuttgart. Oh, close to Stuttgart. Okay, so now I know where you are. Walter's Ellen back in the studio today with the crew, and then, of course, I'm out here in Chowchilla. So we are, the technology is just, isn't technology just wonderful? It's just, it is. It amazes amazing. me. What that really means is Walter's the only one working right now. You know, Walter's what? still in East Lansing. Come on now, people. What do you think I'm doing here in my house? I've been up since 5.30 this morning working. No kidding. What do you think I'm doing? I'm supposed to be sleeping right now. What time is it there, Angelica? Goodness gracious. Nine o'clock. But I mean, felt I've been up for I don't know how long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you just traveled yesterday, didn't you? Yeah, I just got here today. All right. All right. Well, let me welcome everybody out there in our listening audience to the last show for this semester. Not our last show ever, of course, but just our last show for this semester of 2017. We will be on hiatus as everyone here at Tea with BVP scatters to the far corners of this wonderful globe of ours. Uh, We will be back on January 11th with a new semester and hopefully some new surprises for you on our shows. Really? Are we going to be surprised too? (laughs) Yes, you're going to be very surprised, Walter. When we replace that name plaque with somebody else's name, we won't say Walter Hopkins anymore. Oh, wait, did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you'll be saying hallelujah when you don't get that paycheck on February 1st. Right. Oh, I love that song, Hallelujah, by the way. Isn't that a great song? It is. Yep. Not the, not the Messiah one. Not the Messiah one. I'm talking about the Leonard Cohen one. <laughs> I guess I don't know that one. You know the Leonard Cohen one. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. Sing it that for me. Been, Come on now. It's been, it's been, what do you call it, covered by so many people. It's a great song. I'm not going to yep. sing it right now. I've got like a, I'm having um. What do you call it? Allergies, and my nose is acting up, and I, I, I'm very sinusy. And can we? I'm going to be singing like like a chipmunk again. And Christmas, speaking, Christmas time is near. <laughs> speaking of singing, Francis, also known as Francisco, I'm still verifying whether or not he is right about the challenge from last week. Um, only because the internet says one thing doesn't mean that it's the truth. So I will sing for him, but just not today. I I'm yeah. Traveling is not good for your voice. It's not. And you must be in a nicely appropriated room and your vo- exactly. your pipes your pipes must be well lubricated with some nice tea with honey and lemon and all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> no, I don't want to sing either. I just I just don't feel like singing today. I really don't. I always feel Although like I do singing. Have, I do have a diva question about a singer, but that's another story. Of course you do. Um, Oh, I know one thing I need to do before we get going here. Um, Senor Jordan out there in a listening audience, guess what today is? It is his, his 
birthday. Happy, birthday. happy birthday, Senor Jordan. Alles Gute zum Geburtstag. I thought maybe you might do that Mon uh, Marilyn Monroe thing where she sang happy birthday to John oh. Kennedy. <laughs> happy birthday. That's very Senor dramatic. Jordan. All right, then. Moving right along. Senor Jordan. All right. So happy birthday, Senor Jordan. We're, we're happy to send him a shout out for that. Well, I got no news. I mean, I, I was actually, I got one little thing to tell you all before I, I remind everybody what our topic is. But I have this book that I bought um, back in August. I think I was uh, on a holiday with a friend of mine. We went out to Pacheco Pass here in California. And I stopped at the, a place that is called Casa de Fruta, which is actually owned by the family of a woman that I went to college with. Um, and I know her, the Zenger family, I know her quite well. I remember her from college. I mean, we haven't been in touch in a long time. But anyway, so I bought this book in their gift shop called Weird Laws in the United States. And, there's, and they just cover all kinds of things. And there's one law, there's this one chapter on marriage and relationships, so on. And, and so those of you out there in Texas, I want you to verify this for me. Um, because if it's true, I'm grabbing Jake Gyllenhaal and going down to Texas. So um, it says that you, you can be married to someone if you publicly introduce that person as your husband or wife three times in public. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what it said in this book of weird loss. I go, is that true? Can, you know, and of course, these, these people who wrote the book always make a little joke about it. That makes bars interesting or something like that in Texas. But I thought, <laughs> I want to say that out there. Now, people in Texas, if they're listening, I want you to double check on that and let us know if that's true. Is I mean, it the whole state of Texas or is it in a yeah. certain town or... That's no, crazy. No, that's a that's state law. Talk. All these, yeah. No so, way. So, the, the, and, and some of these laws are old and nobody uses them anymore, but they're still in the books, and that's what makes them weird and funny. But, um, oh, and there's also there's other states. I forget what states. For example, like an unmarried woman can't ride a horse on Sundays and things like that. <laughs> I mean, people just haven't bothered to change the laws on the books. But I want to know about that one in Texas. If you just introduce someone as your wife or your or your husband three times publicly, um, then that's considered a marriage contract and you are married. Isn't that interesting? That's crazy. That's, that's crazy. one word for it. <laughs> All right. Well, enough about that. Texas, let us know. Okay. Our topic today is the role of vocabulary in both communication and acquisition. It's a great topic. Uh, we've touched on this a little bit in the past, not too much, but I wanted to bring a couple of points up today on that. Um, and I don't, I don't think vocabulary in communication acquisition gets enough airtime among people. I mean, people just too dang focused, speaking of Texas, too dang focused on grammar all the time. And they don't talk about the role of vocabulary in communication acquisition. So we're going to talk about that today and, and its importance. Um, so remember that during the show, there's the SLA challenge question. Everybody knows how that works, right? Uh, in a few minutes, I will give you the question, the SLA challenge question. And the first person to get a call in with the correct answer wins a prize. So that reminds me, we've got to get some more prizes, don't we? We've got to get some new ones too. Yep. So I'd like to remind everybody, keep your cell phones close by. We don't want you running into the wall or stubbing your toe to find your phone as you run for it to answer the SLA challenge question. Same goes true. Uh, same is true for the Diva challenge question. I'll read that question at some point. And you'll have time to put your Pringles down, put your chips ahoys down, pick up the phone, punch in our number, and tell Dustin on the phone, I've got the answer to the Diva question. That's a good one today, too. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Walter, what's that number? 517-884-4321 is the number to call. 
Again, Dustin is on the line waiting for you to call. So make him a happy man and call in and say hi to Dustin. Um, you can also uh, send us queries over Mixler uh, and so on. I forget who's looking at what today because we, we're all scattered across the world today. So somebody's, somebody's looking at, at Mixler and somebody's looking at the tweets and somebody's doing something. I don't know what. I'm just, I'm just here yakking away. So, um, and actually, if I may interrupt you for just a second, um, just what would you say already, if I said no? What would you say if I said no? Do I not interrupt still, me. I would still interrupt you. <laughs> I know you. Will. I know. Um, so well, we already have information uh, from Texas. Uh, Magister Tally is telling us um, that it, it is indeed common law marriage does exist, and apparently his stepmother and father were common law married for a few years before getting married. I don't know if they introduced each other as husband and wife, and that's how it happened. He also said that stealing a horse is a hangable offense. Well, that's true, but I mean, but I mean, the common law exists in lots of places. It's how you get to be common law. I mean, I want to know three times. It's like clicking your heels in the Wizard of Oz, you know? <laughs> three times, boom, you're married. There's I no place know. like yeah. home. There's no like place a like drag home. Like Jake Gyllenhaal down to Texas, if that's the case, and then you all <laughs> send me something from Neiman Marcus. Okay, so again, we are a call-in talk show, so I want you to call in and talk to us about our topic today, or any topic you want. You don't have to talk about vocabulary. You know, we... We answer all kinds of questions. If you have something else about language teaching or language acquisition you want to talk to, just give us a call. If you want tips for the holiday season for decorating your table, give us a call. If you want to know how to cook a turkey, give us a call. We do all these things. And I will also give you my recipe for masa for tamales, if you're planning on making tamales for Christmas the way I am. Again, our number is 517-884-4321. All righty, right, right, right. That's Dust, what I'm going to do. Dustin's looking really sad over there. He has no one to talk to. Well, because would they? Yeah, he's. Oh, my papers are falling all over the place. Sorry, <laughs> I had to back away from the mic a minute. Oh my gosh, my papers just fell off my desk. Hang on a second, everybody. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I need a new. I need a new setup here. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and give the SLA challenge question now, right? So that we have that out there, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about vocabulary. Why that? SLA we already have question. an answer for it. We do, huh? Okay. <laughs> There's an answer. This is a true-false question. Oh, this then is we a true-false question. Okay, here's a true-false question. There is significant research out there showing that cognates facilitate comprehension and acquisition. True-false. There is significant research out there, out there that shows cognates facilitate comprehension and acquisition. True or false? So call in with an answer, and then we will send you a prize if you are correct. Okie dokies. I can tell the phone is gonna, phones are going to start reading, ringing off the hook real soon. All right. Should I talk a little bit about vocabulary? Talk yes, about please. vocabulary. Let's do it. I'm going to talk about vocabulary. I'm going to talk about the role of vocabulary. Walt and Angelica, I have a question for the two of oh, you. Oh, no. If yes. I were to ask the two, if I were to ask the two of you this, um, what do you think the major role of vocabulary in second language development is? What would you say off the top of your heads? Quick, just say something real quick, something 10 words or less. Super important. How are you going to communicate without vocabulary? Okay, Walter, what would you say? Super important. How are you going to communicate without vocabulary? <laughs> That's six geese a laying, Walter, not six parrots a mocking. Come on, please. <laughs> I agree with what Angelica said. I think it's super important. What are you going to say? 
Without vocabulary. Well, of course. I don't even that, that is what she said. No. That, that's the first thing that comes to mind. What I want to talk about are three things, though. I want to talk about comprehension, acquisition, and what was my third one? <laughs> oh, yeah. About meanings and words and their meanings. Okay, so if let's talk about comprehension, because uh, comprehension is part of communication, right? Um, it is obvious that the more words you know, the more you can comprehend, right? Would that make sense? The more words you know, the more you can comprehend. Correct. So just think about it this way. You can imagine any eight-word sentence, Angelica Walter, in your head. Make up an eight-word sentence. If I understand only one word of that sentence, comprehension of what you say is probably not likely, right? If I understand three words, comprehension may be increased, but still may not be likely. It depends on the words, right? The words that I actually understand. If I understand five or six of the eight words in your sentence, I have a much better chance at figuring out what is being said to me overall, right? But here's the rub. Here's the rub about vocabulary and comprehension. Um, or I don't know if it's the rub or it's odd. That's not odd. It's the rub. Here's the rub. Most words are learned in context. That is, while you're listening and while you're reading. So you need words to comprehend but you also need comprehension to learn words. It's almost like a vicious circle. Um, and so a lot of people don't understand that vocabulary, the, the bulk of vocabulary learning itself happens through comprehension. Yet, um, and, and, and a good deal of it, in fact, most of it for, for educated people is through reading. It's not through interaction, one-on-one -on -one oral interaction. Um, but again, you know, so, it, it, but you need words to comprehend, but you need comprehension to learn words. Um, this is why, in, for example, in language teaching, we stress at the very, very beginning, use short sentences in your language classes. Use pauses and increase the frequency. Use words over and over and over because all these things help attenuate the problem of comprehension for learners at the beginning and increase the likelihood that they're able to extract the words out of the, comprehend, out of the, out of the input that they're actually trying to comprehend. Um, so that's why we, we, we suggest so many strategies at the beginning stages. Um, and then as they learn more words, they can start reading and so on. And then you be, you're, the cycle builds up. And um, I forget what the threshold is, what they say, the research is. Something like 4,000 words um, is a threshold. You need 4,000 words more or less really, really well in order to launch yourself into um, self-reading and so on. Now, that's comprehension. Now let's talk about acquisition. Uh, because acquisition is input dependent, what happens, gang? The more input you comprehend, the more language you can acquire. Thus, vocabulary becomes critical to acquiring all parts of language. That includes formal features of language like morphological endings on verbs, verb inflections, noun inflections, all that kind of stuff. Other bits of grammar, um, sentence structure, pragmatics, you know, the speaker intent, what sentences actually mean sociolinguistic appropriateness, you know, using language uh, the right way in the right context and all other kinds of things. Um, so let's look at the, let's just look at people like to talk about grammar because everybody's obsessed with grammar. Let's look at something as simple as past tense and past tense endings. Now there are two ways to make what we call uh, temporal references in language. Temporal reference just means referring to past, present, or future, right? Uh, there are two ways to understand or, or get that from the input, depending on the language you're learning. Um, verb endings, uh, are one way to get past, present, and future temporal reference, or and or words and phrases that actually indicate themselves temporal reference. Uh, 
So in a sentence like the following, let me get, let me get my sample sentence. I got I to gotta shove my papers around. So in the sample sentence, um, John called last night. There are actually two places in that sentence where temporal reference um, is indicated. One is on the verb called, and the other is on the phrase last night. Both of these things signal pastness. Now, what looks to be the case in acquisition is that learners first acquire vocabulary that indicate temporal reference, and then with some time, use the vocabulary items to bootstrap themselves into how the language encodes temporal reference grammatically. In other words, so what learners are trying to get from the input, what they need to, what, what they need to start learning temporal reference is not grammar endings, but words that signal temporal reference that later they can attach, they, they can match with the grammar ending. So I need to learn words like last night, next week, tomorrow, yesterday, and so on. And as these words get into my vocabulary and they become uh, robustly represented, they take what we might call deep root in my mental dictionary, I can then use those words to start bootstrapping myself into how the language might, if it does at all, incorporate temporal reference grammatically. So there's a good example of how it's vocabulary that leads to the acquisition of grammar um, and not vice versa. And vocabulary becomes very important for getting grammar. Now, the third thing I want to touch on about this in terms of acquisition development is the following. Um, and it relates, again, to getting grammar and getting sentence structure. Words aren't just meanings. I've said this before in the show, but I don't think we can say this enough. Words aren't just meanings. Words, words also have grammatical properties, right? Um, especially verbs. So here's an easy comparative example. I'm going to take three verbs, eat, pull, and die, right? So eat, for example, has... Um, uh, all these verbs have what we call a thematic grid or a theta grid. Um, this grid talks about the underlying entities needed or are optional for that thing to happen. So eat, for example, requires what we call an agent, right? And sometimes it also requires a patient or a theme. So I can say I eat a lot or I eat frequently. I use the adverb I eat frequently. But I can also say I eat bananas every day. Um, so it always requires an agent, so something, somebody who's the eater. Uh, optional is whether or not it requires a patient, such as bananas or a lot uh, or leftovers. Um, and so um, uh, we can contrast that with a verb like die, which doesn't have an agent. There's nothing that causes the dying. Um, die has in what we call the theta grid an experiencer, right? So uh, the event of dying is experienced by someone. It's that experiencer that becomes the subject of sense. So if I say um, my best friend is dying, um, notice that that's the only thing that verb can take. It takes no other entities. So eat takes obligatorily one, optionally another. Die only takes one, and it's not the same kind of thing as eat. And then there's the verb put. Okay, like I put the books on the table, right? So put requires always three things. It requires an agent, the thing that's doing the putting. It requires a theme or patient, the thing that gets put. Then it requires what's called a location, where the thing gets put. In most languages that have the verb put, any one of those things absent makes a sentence nonsensical or ungrammatical, right? So you can't say, I put the book. You have to say where, you have to have location. You can't say, I put on the table. You have to say the what, the theme, right? Um, so um, all of these, this, these thematic grids or these underlying um, things required by verbs project onto the syntax. So what this means that is that as you learn vocabulary and you learn um, and you start to find out what, what these 
vocabulary items entail, that can help push the syntax along. Uh, in other words, having unconscious knowledge uh, about how what underlies words um, pushes me as a language learner of English, for example, to make sure that all parts of the underlying verb get expressed in a sentence with a verb like put, okay? And it also helps me to comprehend sentences uh, with a verb like put. So let's look, at, let's look at something like Spanish. Let's say you're learning Spanish and you hear vamos a poner los helados en la nevera, right? So, which means we're going to put the ice creams in the freezer. Now, if I comprehend vamos a poner, if I understand that means we're going to put, and I also understand, I also comprehend helados, ice creams, but maybe I don't know the, the word nevera. I've never heard it before, right? But my underlying and unconscious knowledge of the verb poner pushes me to deduce that this word nevera must be the place where we're putting the ice cream. Why? Because put requires three entities. Poner requires three entities. A putter, the thing put, and the place where it's put. So if I infer, if I figure out that vamos a poner los helados, if I comprehend that, that means we're going to put the ice creams. I have to, my, my, my knowledge, that verb, what it, not just what it means, but its underlying uh, entailments, um, tells me that, that the nevera must be the place we're going to put the ice cream. And then I use real world knowledge to figure out, hey, maybe that means freezer, right? So this underlying knowledge of verbs that we have, underlying knowledge of words, helps tell us um, certain things about how a sentence is going to behave. And from that, guess what? we learn more grammar, we learn more language, right? So vocabulary is not just about, not just about meanings. So vocabulary becomes really important in language development and language acquisition for three things. Uh, it's important during comprehension, uh, it's important during um, acquisition, and it's important because of the um, grammatical information that, that um, it carries, that is vocabulary carries, and that helps again along with acquisition. So I think those are important things for us to keep in mind, and that's why those of us who, who push a lot of vocabulary and work with lots of words in the class and emphasize vocabulary or grammar are actually doing our students a service as opposed to spending a lot of time on grammar and less time on vocabulary. Vocabulary is the key for a long time uh, for language acquisition. So with that, I will stop and leave that in our listeners' heads so that they can ponder that. What do you guys think about that? Interesting, right? Stuff. Absolutely. And actually, Reed has a quick um, follow-up question. So a word encountered across many contexts should lead to acquisition of grammar, but repeated identical contexts, for example, flashcards, audio, video, replay, isn't robust enough for acquisition. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. So uh, it might be okay in the beginning um, because what learners like to do is map one form with one meaning or one function, which means not just grammar, but also words. So, um, uh, so it might take a while for, for learners, they might hear cook, uh, only as a verb and only map it on as a verb and not know that it's a noun as well. It might take a while for them to get it as a noun that he's a cook and he cooks, um, both, both use the same word, right? So read is right that multiple contexts expand your language and expand your, your grammar. Um, but in the beginning learners might. Um, rely on a strategy of one word means one thing. Um, so, um, so that's a conundrum, but, but it works itself out in acquisition over time. Okay. Uh, oh, we've got somebody on the line already. We've got Cesar on the phone. Cesar, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Cesar, it says you're calling from, are you calling from Mexico? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm from Mexico. Okay, from Mexico. But de qué de qué parte? From from what part of Mexico are you calling from? <laughs> from la ciudad de Mexico, Mexico City. La ciudad, la capital. Wow. Okay, you're there. You're there. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people get mad when I say that, especially Mexicans, because there's a lot of CDs. I don't know why we're called that, but anyway, that's all right. That's yeah. It's well, you know, there, there's. I know, I know, I know, I know what the politics of that are. So, but we won't get it on the show. You can. We'll, we'll do. We'll deal with that in some other show. But okay, I understand you're calling about the SLA challenge question. Is that correct? Yes. Well, let me true. go ahead and let me ha- let me read the question again, everybody, and then you can. Tell us your answer. So it's a true or false question. Mm -hmm. Here's the statement. There is Mm -hmm. significant research out there showing that cognates facilitate comprehension and acquisition. True or false, they said? It depends. That's my answer. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on whether the the student's language is very close or very far apart from, from the target language. So, for example, people learning Spanish if they come from Italy or from Brazil, um, there's a, a point when they're intermediate level that there's just so many false cognates that it becomes uh, confusing and frustrating. Um, there's the other side of the spectrum, the Chinese students, the Japanese students, for example. They come here and some Chinese students don't even have the, the necessary basic skills to recognize the words as words. And then there's the, uh, the students in the sort of sweet spot. They come from the U.S. or France. They, they, they speak European language. So th- there's an equilibrium or a balance there where they can uh, recognize a lot of words, but they're not very confusing because there's, there's not a lot of cognates, uh, false cognates. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm going to give you the end. I'm going to, I'm going to go ding, ding, ding and say <laughs> you're right, but you're not quite right. Cause I think that was such a good answer and you're right on lots of levels. So let me tell you that the answer technically is false. So let, let me, okay. let me, cause it's kind of a trick question. I was actually trying to trick the audience. And, and so I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you get tricked. I'm going to let you get a prize for calling in and offering an answer. <laughs> but the question really is about, is there significant research out there showing that cognates facilitate comprehension and acquisition? The answer is actually there isn't that kind of research. Mm. There's all the kind of research that you just talked about. There's research, a lot of research on the relationship between cognates and an L1 and L2. To what degree are there cognates? Mm. To what degree aren't there cognates? There's research on that. There's re- mm. research on bilingual children's ability to recognize con- con- uh, cognates. Uh, there's some research on the idea that concrete words and cognates are easy to learn. In most of the research, it means memorize um, compared to other words. Uh, and then again, there's research on the recognizability of cognates that you talked about. But no, mm-hmm. no research actually looks at the facilitative effect of cognates. It's just, when All this research that you were talking about and I just mentioned assumes that cognates have a facilitative effect on comprehension and not thus on acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why people research all those things. But nobody's actually researched whether or not cognates facilitate comprehension. Now, of course, intuitively, it makes sense, right? Right. Um, mm. But we have to be careful because a lot of intuition has been shown not to be true. So yeah. this is a good topic for people out there looking for a thesis topic or an MA topic or a paper topic mm. or even a dissertation topic that um, how do we show 
not that people can recognize cognates, which is the bulk of the research out there, but, um, and whether cognates are easier to learn than non-cognates, we want to know, does having cognates actually facilitate comprehension and thus acquisition? Does it? Um, so that would be interesting to look at. And how would we look at that? So, so say so, we're going to send you a prize because you're a champion for, and, a, and a trooper for calling in for a trick question today. <laughs> I think that? it's kind of funny, though, that uh, most people are responding based on their experience when the question out there was, is there research out there saying this? But alas, people don't like to listen to real questions, Cesar. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Cesar, I need your address. Oh, so if you could please harsh. send me your address to our Gmail account, twithbvp at gmail.com. Cesar, I would love to have your address so that we can send you that prize because you are the winner of the SLA Challenge question today. Oh, thank you so much. And there you go. Taking my call. Thank well, you. And you guys are rock stars. In, in oh, well, th- we're only rock stars because so we have great people like you. So thank you, Cesar, so much. <laughs> okay. Hasta, hasta pronto. A ver cuando nos vemos. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling in. Bye-bye, Cesar. That was, uh, yeah, I threw that question on purpose because I want to get that discussion of cognates in as part of our talk about vocabulary today. But it's interesting. There isn't research on comprehension itself. The bulk, the bulk of the research is on can people recognize cognates? Um, there's a lot, believe it or not, there's a lot of work on bilingual kids and their and when they're able to start recognize cognates and make equivalencies. But nobody, you know, because all, all teachers say use cognates that facilitates comprehension, and and we say that use cognates that facilitates comprehension, but we don't even know that it does. And um, so um, so, but one step is recognizability, and another step is then comprehension. Just because you can recognize something does not mean you can comprehend better. Um, especially when it comes to oral language, not just written language. And the bulk of the research has also been, been done, by the way, on written language. Hardly anybody looks at cognates in oral language, which is a whole nother kettle of pescados, as we say. All right. I'll read it. Right, 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 right. Okay. Um, before I give the Diva Challenge question out, we've got a few minutes here. I'm going to actually read a couple of things from our Twitter feed. Where's my Twitter feed? I had a Twitter feed. It's on the floor my with Twitter, all the rest of your papers. My Twitter feed has disappeared. <laughs> That's well, oh. most acceptable. Oh, who's oh doing gosh, the Mary right. Poppins today, huh? Here it is. <laughs> I have my, my Twitter feed today. Oh, that, I got to see that new Churchill movie with Gary Oldman. This yeah. is our finest hour. Okay. <laughs> um, this was the question on Twitter from Winston Churchill. What was the highlight of tea with BVP this semester? (laughs) (laughs) What was the highlight of of tea with BVP this semester for you? We got some pretty good answers here. Um, Pamela said, I'm adopting the word learners instead of students from now on. She goes, that was something that was a big thing for her and a big highlight for her. And so she's made those changes in her syllabus and the way she's doing things. And instead of talking about student responsibilities in class, she's not talking about learners' responsibilities. That's kind of cool. Let's see. Monsieur Sullivan says, reading, his highlight was reading while we were on the topic, one chapter a week while we were doing the countdown um, to ACTFL. So that's kind of cool. I'm glad he liked that. Hope other people like that too. All right. Um, Senorita Linares says one of the highlights for her just consistently is when she listens to the show and we state things that reaffirms her gut feelings about certain educational trends. 
Uh, I won't say which one she mentions. Uh, <laughs> um, but she does like, for example, the idea of saying it's okay to have a, a teacher-led classroom as opposed to a teacher-centered classroom and a learner-centered classroom or acquisition-centered classroom um, is better than, ta than talking about a student-centered classroom and so on. She said those all reinforced, reinforced ways she was thinking about running a classroom, but she couldn't articulate it well for people who, um, who were you know, advocating, oh, students must do all the work. Um, so she was glad that was a highlight for her. Um, Mary says that community, she thinks TVP, uh, T with BBP provides her a great community. Um, it's weekly professional development uh, with top language teachers. And so she likes that aspect of what we do. So good for her. Uh, we got a couple others. I might save those in a minute. Um, we got um, stuff from Longinus and from Chris. I'll save those. We'll come back to those. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give the Diva Challenge question now for people. It's not a vocabulary Diva Challenge question, by the way. It's just my typical Diva Challenge question. You guys ready? Okay. We yes, are ready. Bring it on. We'll see if Walter knows the answer to this question. I think the answer to the that question is no. Is no. <laughs> no. Here we go. So here's the Diva Challenge question. The Broadway diva Patti LuPone won her first Tony in 1980 for what musical? Again, the Broadway diva Patti LuPone won her first Tony in 1980 for what musical? Call us with your answer. Call us with questions about vocabulary. Call us with questions about language teaching, language acquisition. Just call us. We're in the words of Deborah Harry. Call me. Call me. <laughs> call me. Call me anytime. All right. Okay. So what else do we have? Anything on Mixler going on? Who's doing Mixler? I'm doing Mixler. Okay. So what's going on Mixler? Anybody talking to us there? Too shy yep. to call in? Yeah, I, I keep telling them to call in. Um, Reed was asking earlier um, if you can give a statistical learning or experience-based account of put constructions when you were talking about um, put and eat and die. I'm not quite sure what he means. Do you know what he means? I know what he means. He's talking about usage-based uh, things. Uh, what I can tell him is that... Um, I, there's no research on this. This is my hypothesis. Great. Now he's telling me not to ask that. Well, oh. Reed, you got to make up your mind. <laughs> okay. Well, this kind of goes back to something we were saying earlier about context, because the verb poner, for example, in Spanish is does not just mean put. I mean, to us speakers, it means put, but it means put in different ways that don't have English translations. In, English can translate translators as put. So, for example, like there's poner. And then there's ponerse, which means to put on, like reflexively, like you put your clothes on. Um, but then there's the use of ponerse, for example, like say, puso a correr, like he began to run. We have to translate that in English as he began. But literally, as a speaker of Spanish, what I'm saying is I, I, um, he, he, put, he put himself into running. Um, and you can tell the ingentive nature of it. What's interesting about that, it, it, it read and other listeners out there, is at... What learners first get are the prototypical meanings and functions and grammaticalities of a verb like put or poner in Spanish. They get the prototypical ones because they're the most frequent. And so frequency drives what they first get. And so a learner's Spanish, I've hypothesized, first gets the poner in like, I put the book on the table. And then the next most frequent thing they're going to get, um, again, it deals with frequency. It's driven by frequency largely, is the reflexive version of putting clothes on. Um, and so on. 
And then one of the much later things they get is things uh, where ponerse is taken out of this context of putting uh, in an English view of the world and into a Spanish view of the world where you're putting yourself to running. First, you know, se puso a correr, so he began to run. Um, and what's interesting about that is you, you find that learners, because of the nature of poner, because it requires an animate agent, the root of poner requires an animate agent, learners, I've never encountered a learner who makes a mistake of saying something like, se puso a llover, it began to rain. You can't say that in Spanish. Se puso a llover, it sounds really weird. And the reason is because poner requires an agent. No matter, no matter what usage, no matter what kind of collocation, it requires an agent. And so um, say, say, puso llover sounds really weird because raining has no agency. You have to use the, um, the neutral empezó, which literally means began, empezó llover, which doesn't require agency because anything can begin. But poner requires agency, and so that's why you can't use it in situations with things that don't have agency. So learners, learners have that underlying knowledge, and that's an example of how it constrains the grammar, how vocabulary helps them to learn the grammar and constrain the grammar because they won't use it improperly uh, because of their underlying knowledge of what poner really means. Uh, okay, we got Grant on the line. Grant, are you there? I'm here. Grant! Hey, Grant Cito, are you calling from Minnesota? I'm calling from Minnesota where it's lightly snowing here this afternoon. Oh, well, um, it was not lightly snowing yesterday in Michigan. Oh, my God. Tell me about it. I beat tell the blizzard. Tell me I was, about I it. I thought I was at Dairy Queen with Walter, and there was blizzards all around me, I tell you. It was, it was, it was just, it, my planes were all delayed yesterday, but I got out. I got out just in the time because I think things must have shut down afterwards. I don't know. But anyway, Grant, what's up? What are you calling about? Well, I'm just calling to say hi, and uh, I wanted to, I, 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 things were kind of, there weren't any calls, and so I thought I'd call in with this really important question, and it's not just for you, BVP, although I'm, answer, I'm interested in your answer, but it's also for Angelica and Walter. I'm wondering if you can recommend your favorite holiday cocktail. Ooh. Yes, I can tell you right now. <laughs> that I'm was having, a quick yes. I, yeah, because... Do you remember, Grant, that I invented the Equinox Martini? Mm, I remember I that. I remember that, yes. Yes. Well, I also have this, the Solstice version of the Martini, which this next Thursday on the 21st, I'm having a Solstice party. And so I'm making Solstice Martinis. And it's the same ingredients, but instead of equal parts Kahlua and vodka, it's two-thirds th- two parts Kahlua and one part vodka. So that because the days are long, I mean, the nights are longer in the winter, right? The Solstice <laughs> is when you have the you know, most night. And so, um, and you make it the same way. You put your chilled vodka in the martini glass, and then you slowly drizzle the Kahlua into the glass so that it's layered. You have a two-layered drink, and then the, um, there's more Kahlua than there is vodka. And then in the summer, when you get the summer solstice, you reverse it. It's two parts vodka and one part mm. Kahlua because you have more daylight in the summer solstice. And so, nice. so that's my cocktail Good. drink for the solstice. How's that? Yeah, I... Bill, I, I tried your Equinox one, and I could not get the two to, to maintain, uh, to, to continue to be separate. What is the trick to that? You probably they poured too fast. Was, was your vodka from the freezer? Yes. Okay. Tito's even. Yeah, okay. Um, and then, and then you really, did you really slowly pour the, uh, you have to really slowly pour on the side. You have to like drizzle it down the side uh, of the glass. Um, so I did. I poured it really slowly. I poured it super. I, I even tried. That was the first time. The second time I tried to pour it slower, 
The third time, I tried to pour it over the backside of a spoon. That didn't work. And the fifth or fourth, I can't remember how I continued to try after that. Well, by that time, you were drunk on the first three. So you don't remember what you did. Wow. By that time, you're going, who, who gives a rat's behind on this? I'm just pouring the vodka and vodka together. All right. No. Well, what about I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why, Grant. It works for me every time. I can layer, I can layer just about anything in vodka. I've made a ruby red. Here's another good Christmas drink for you, too, if you want a little holiday red. Um, I call mm. it a ruby red slipper, but you can use it for, as a Christmas drink. You can call it the Christmas ornament. Again, it's the same thing, vodka, <laughs> and then you 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 um, drizzle just the tiniest amount of chambour into the vodka so it sinks to the bottom. And you got a tiny little hint of red at the bottom of your martini. Nice. And so that's like a, it's like an ornament hanging in a tree. So you can call I call it the ruby red slipper because it's like the two little feet at the bottom of the body. But you can use it as Christmas as the ornament hanging on the tree. There you go. Try that one. It's really good. Very nice. I'll give it a try. What about Angelica and Walter? Well, I usually just drink Glühwein, right? Tis the season. Tis the season for Glühwein, that's true. And Walter? Orange juice. Yeah, water. <laughs> that sounds he good goes to me. Dairy Queen for a blizzard. <laughs> <Boring>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Happy holidays, you guys. Happy holidays, Grant. Thank you. Thanks Grant, thanks for calling. That was, that's the first time we ever got a drink question. <laughs> yeah, and it took up half the I show. Like now, come on. Let's get moving here. Didn't take it. Well, you, I'm waiting for you guys to give me some SLA stuff from Mixler or, or Yeah, I've got Twitter a question. Are well, you ready? Bring Let's it on, Walter. Let's make music together. All right, here we go. This is a question from Steve. Sorry, Stephen. I'm assuming it's Stephen, not Stefan. But anyway, he says, hi, everybody. I love the show more and more every week. How's that possible? There's got to be a you know point at which you don't love it anymore. But anyway, I have a question that has been troubling me for a while. Many students learn vocabulary from bilingual lists, and then later they are able to understand these words in the input or produce them in the output. Is this not an example of explicit knowledge becoming sorry, explicit knowledge about L2 becoming implicit? There's the question from Stephen, and he would like an answer. So there you have it. Yeah. Um, the, the implicit explicit debate has never been about vocabulary. It's only been about grammar. So, um, so we, we don't we don't tend to talk about vocabulary evolving explicit implicit um, learning. And in fact, when I talk about the explicit implicit debate in grammar, I say there is a role for explicit strategies and explicit learning in the explicit implicit debate for grammar. But it has nothing to do with uh, grammar. It has to do with trying to understand a message, and vocabulary is implicated. So, but what's interesting is that your um, the research um, is inconclusive on whether or just to what degree explicit learning of vocabulary itself actually helps you learn the vocabulary. Um, there's just as much research that shows that um, not doing explicit things with vocabulary uh, in the sense of memorizing, writing words out, and so on. Um, so just learning words in context, but again, a reduced context, Stephen. So it's not, it's not, um, it's not that you hear a bunch of input and you pick the words out of the input. You might see a picture with a word. And, and so you're just matching the picture to the word while you're hearing it. Um, and, and that's, I mean, you can call that explicit learning if you want. Um, but it doesn't involve you repeating, practicing, writing it down, trying to use it in a sense. Those are all the more explicit approaches of vocabulary acquisition. 
So, um, and I don't know of any research that really shows actually that um, learning words from bilingualists and so on help you recognize things in the input. I have enough anecdotal evidence myself to suggest that it doesn't work very well. Um, so uh, again, whenever we use our experiences to talk about language acquisition, we tend to be selective. We tend to pick out things we think are happening, but these are all researchable things. And there are a lot of things when I was getting started, I used to think happened and I used to think students did things. So I started researching them and then I realized, oh no, they don't do that. That doesn't work. And so I think in this case, um, the memorizing and learning words from, from bilingualists has some effect, but I think it's pretty minimal over the, over the long haul. So anyway, that's my answer to that, Walter. All right. There you have Anything it. Anything else on Mixler? Or th yes. We'll get Stephen to call in sometime. That was a good question. I like that. Anything else coming in? Oh, we've got, uh, we've got a call coming in. Here we go. We got, uh, Francesca, are you on the Hello. line? Hey, Francesca, are you the there? Line. There I'm you here. go. I can hear. I can hear you. I know you're there. Yes. <laughs> Hi, Francesca. Um, Hola. You're calling from California, right? Yeah, Barstow, California. Yep, you're on my time zone, so good. All right, I see yep. on the I see on my screen that you are calling about the Diva Challenge question. Is that correct? I am. I have a guess. Well, then let me go ahead and read the question again for our audience and for Walter and Angelica, and then you can provide the answer. Are you ready? Here it goes. Okay. The Broadway diva, Patti LuPone, won her first Tony in 1980 for what musical? Francesca, what do you say? Evita. Excellent. She comes from the people. Yes, exactly. There it is. Ding, 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 ding. There you go. Argentina. Yes, exactly. So um, a lot of people don't know that the best Evita ever was Patti LuPone, long before there was Madonna, of course. Oh, young yes. Kids, young kids don't know this, but man, if you ever get a hold of the CD or if you go through iTunes of the original Broadway cast from 1979 with Patti LuPone and Mandy Patinkin and all that group, my gosh, what an operetta. Just Fabulous. Yeah, That's my fabulous. mom was a drama teacher for 30-some-odd years at Norwalk High School, and she would always take her drama kids every year to New York in the winter. So she saw, like, Equus, Chorus Line, all those from that era. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I actually was – I was living and teaching and researching in Rutgers at the time, and I went and saw Patty LuPone on Broadway that year. So it was – Oh, okay. I am glad – I am glad that I did. That's one of my things in life on my bucket list I don't have to worry about. So there you go. All I right. Well, I thank you, one thing off my bucket list. I saw Stonehenge a couple weeks ago. Oh, there oh, you nice. go. Good for you. Yeah. All right. Well, well we're gonna so um, make sure you make sure you have given your um, address to um, uh, or send it to us via email. Either way, so that we can send you your prize. Okay. All Thanks right. Thank in. you so much. Thanks, okay, Francesca. Bye. bye bye. Bye, Francesca. I love me my Patty Lapone. I'm glad Francesca got that right. Good for mm -hmm. her. Patty Lapone is just um, just incredible, just and not and not just as a singing actress, but just as a dramatic actress. She is just. I saw her on what was that? Was it Showtime? Or I think it was Showtime had that sh limited series on called Penny Dreadful. Anybody see that? Mm -mm. With Ava, uh, what's her name? The British actress, Timothy Dalton, 
Um, and Patty Lapone had a guest stint for like about five or six episodes. Oh my God, I was riveted. She was so good. Okay, mm-hmm. anyway. Well, back to SLA. Off the diva stuff and back to SLA. That was a good question. I'm glad, again, I'm glad Francesca got that. Anything else coming in on uh, email or Mixler or Twitter, as Walter likes to say, Twitter? I Twitter have um, a question here from Dan in Colorado. And he says he's wondering how to build a large lexicon for students at the upper levels of language learning. He says he teaches levels four and five IB. His understanding is that CITPRS and CRTPRS, you're supposed to shelter vocabulary to a certain extent, especially at the lower level, so it's not to right. overwhelm students with large lists of vocabulary, but at the same time, prepare them for the rigor of the these types of tests, like the IB and the AP. So how do you... B- build that large lexicon for your students at the upper levels is Dan from Um, Colorado. Content learning, content learning and content reading, 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 reading. Um, Once you get out of initial stages of language acquisition, the biggest contributor to vocabulary buildup is reading. It's pretty undisputed in the literature. Um, And so, um, and how it actually happens, it's incidental learning. It's called incidental learning. While, while you're, and it's called incidental learning because you're focused on trying to extract meaning from a texture reading. And incidentally, while you're doing that, you're learning new words. You're learning the vocabulary. And you might also be, um, uh, uh, grammar development might be pushed along too through that. So, um, so it's reading. Reading is all about reading. Um, and there's been a lot of research on this. Uh, uh, about the impact of incidental, uh, about reading on incidental vocabulary development and so on. The process itself is still, I don't think, thoroughly understood exactly how incidental learning happens. Um, but, um, but reading, 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 it's all about reading. So lots of content reading. Who was that again, Dan? So That's Dan, right. lots of content reading and lots of discussion of the reading. Um, and again, uh, there's a lot of individual variation, individual development at that stage. So you can't, you can't assume everybody's learning the same words. You can assume that there's probably some commonalities, but so Walter and Angelica and I could be reading the same text and maybe pick up 10 new words all the same. But then there's another five words Walter picks up and a different five words Angelica picks up and another three words I pick up that are different because of our, who knows why. Um, so, yeah. Reading. All about reading. Okay. Uh, I just saw on my screen, we got another call. We have, uh, is it Levi? Is it Levi? Yep. Yep. Levy? No, it's Levi. <laughs> uh, hey, Levi. Hey, Levi, where are you calling from? How are you doing? I'm calling from Lincoln, Nebraska. From Lincoln, Nebraska. Great. Well, welcome to the show, and thanks for calling in. What are you calling about, Levi? Uh, I don't know if it was answered earlier in the show, but I have kind of been thinking lately uh, when I introduce new vocabulary and when we're kind of, when I'm speaking and using, I'm a Latin teacher here in Lincoln. So when I'm speaking and using uh, words, I didn't know if I should be giving the L1 equivalence with like the grammatical ending information attached. So since Latin has the different endings, um, like puer means boy. So I would write puer with the English equivalent next to it. So with pueri. Um, that's the possessive of boy. So would it, would it be better to write of the boy or would it be better to just write boy? Cause that's something that I've kind of been wondering about whether 
if that would be helpful for students to form that in their brain, or if it doesn't really matter, they're just going to pick up the basic understanding of the word. Well, and and, and a word sense. like poor, yeah, like puer, or you can you can even take some regular. I mean, puer is, is is regular in a certain sense, um, but yes. you can, the what my suggestion is, and again, there's no research on this, but I think it just makes sense to try this as a strategy, is is to just tell them very quickly what that means. Um, okay. So, so for example, um, in your example, uh, pueri, that would be the boys and give them something like the boys sweater or the boys baseball bat. You just tell them real quick what mm-hmm. it is and then, you, then you've got to be using it because it's going to be hearing it mm-hmm. and reading it in context where they actually get it. But what that initial oh, real, okay. real, real, real quick brief translation does is ensures that they're understanding what that version of pu'er means. Um, so, um, so just like, you know, Kabbalus, if they hear Kabbalus, for example, for horse, they, you know, then you mm-hmm. hear Kabbalum, which means, you know, which also means the horse, but the horse is an object. It, they, they get all yep. those things in context, but it doesn't hurt. So just like the last question that you were saying. Yeah. So it doesn't hurt to just very quickly establish the meaning and then, but then use it in context a lot because they need to hear it and see it in context a lot. We just did a study on Latin, by the way, um, and our results were kind of interesting about this stuff. Uh, We were looking at case marking on on Latin nouns. um, And what we discovered that learners very quickly can just, um, if they've got clear context with very short sentences, they can very quickly develop sensitivity to endings on nouns, for example, very quickly. Um, but they have to have, they have to have very clear context of what those things mean for that to happen. Well, I will keep my story sentences short. Yeah. Keep your story sentences short. Yeah. And again, just you, and then use that, you know, um, like if you, if you're introducing, cause Latin's a little bit different the way it's taught depends on where you are. But, um, in that particular case, for example, you can just introduce real quickly what the word means and then use it a lot. Um, you know, cool. To, Ask them different questions about the boy's mother, the boy's father, the boy's whatever, whatever the story's about. So there you go. All right. Thank you so much. Well, well, thanks. Thanks, Levi. Thanks for calling, Levi. Bye, Levi. I think that's interesting that he teaches Latin. His name is Levi. (laughs) Because I don't know. Is Levi, um, but Levi, who was, uh, was was it Livy? Who was the Greek, um, the Roman author? Was it, was, was it L-E-V-Y? What was it? God, yeah, my, I think so. my, my Roman, my, oh God, I'm getting old. I can't remember half the stuff I've learned in my life. You know, I've left brain cells all over the United States. That's awful, I tell you. <laughs> What's that stuff that's good for your memory? I, can remember, I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> I, need start, I need to start taking it. <laughs> I think wow. it's Levy, L-E-V-Y. So it's interesting that Levi is almost like Levy. Oh, well, that joke went out the window because... <laughs> again <laughs> <laughs> I, I need a solstice martini oh please. my well oh, that too okay uh, anything else <laughs> anything else on mixler email um kelly was asking um this is a general question to the mixler world but maybe you have a thought on this does anyone have ideas for getting content into early level english as a second uh language or english for uh, speakers of other languages into those classes while using CI and keeping it interesting. Places we can look or information you can direct us to. So content into early level ESL classes. Yeah, I don't have any. I don't have any sites on that. Now. I'm assuming she's done a Google search and maybe nothing turned up. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. 
But so any English teachers out there, Kelly wants that answer. Um, but there must be, I mean, there must be stuff like that because Canada does this, for example, gets content in as soon as they can, for example, in some of their English immersion schools, um, as do other places. So I guess it just depends on what kind of content. Um, and, con you know, because there's content and there's content, right? I mean, um, that makes yeah, a lot of there's sense. There's content and there's content. Yeah. So, yeah. So. <laughs> Anything else? What else is out there? One more quick question before we. Uh, well, I have a, a statement. This is from Reed in Minnesota. He says, "Not a question, but a resource." Hope this is all right. Last week there were a few language questions not related to SLA. There's a podcast not nearly as good as yours, but close, called "Away with Words." They answer word origin questions all of the time. One of the hosts is a lexicographer. I think I said that right. It is a show about language and how we use it. This is a great resource for anyone and everyone who loves language. And then in parentheses, S, so language or languages. I was not asked to write this by the show, by the way. So there you have it. If people are interested <laughs> well, in that. Make sure Ryan gets that so we can post that on our site because that sounds like something I'd like to look at. It sounds like fun. I love, I was talking to somebody recently about the origin of wor a word. Oh, my doctor, because um, I have a cult of blood in the urine. And so he says, he goes, you just use the word occult. I go, yeah. He goes, most people wouldn't do that. He goes, because it sounds something like they're talking about spooky stuff. I go, no, occult comes from Latin occultus. And I started talking about occultus means, literally it means not seen, something you can't see. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> he was all amazed because I knew that. Then we had, so after we talked about my urine, we had a half hour conversation about linguistics. There you go. <laughs> oh my <laughs> What the hell? <laughs> we're ending on that note. We're ending here on that. Wow. My God, Bill. Hey, Angelica, you're in my territory now. <laughs> Obviously. Am I glad that there's an ocean that sets us apart right now? Oh, uh, anyway, I, I think it's joke, time to wrap up the show. I the ocean, but I won't do it. All right. <laughs> No, no, but but that was my doctor is a great guy. He actually was just sat there and talked about linguistics for half an hour. He's just fast. He asked me all kinds of questions and stuff. It was hmm. So, all right then. Well, this is our last show of the semester. We won't see anybody, everybody, until January 11th. So, I'm going to do our acknowledgments. Um, we want to thank our technical producer Daniel Trago, who's not here today, but he had to go to Mexico. Um, and so taking over him the soundboard today was, is Chad, Chad Bosley. So Chad, thank you so much. Go, Chad. Yeah, Chad. And doing that, you've been doing a great job. Thank you. Uh, our media producer, Luca Giappone, who's also not here today. And Ryan Stuck, our other interns, took over that job for today, running the Trello board and, and um, delivering things and so on. Um, but we still thank Daniel and Luca anyway, um, because they do everything to set up the show before they leave to make sure everything goes smoothly. And again, I just thank them, both Chad and Ryan, our interns, for uh, what they do. But when they're not doing, not filling in for Dan and Luca, they're doing other things. So thank you. Uh, we thank the College of Arts and Letters at MSU, especially our dean, Christopher Long. Hey, Chris, hope you're having a great end of the semester. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in our show do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And of course, we always thank our listeners out there and our loyal fans who love you because we love you too. All right. Again, we're on hiatus until January 11th. We'll be back on Elvis's birthday. Yay! Until then, happy holidays. Goodbye, everybody. Have a great, have a great winter solstice. 
and happy acquisition to everyone. Say goodbye, my little down-covered friends. <laughs> Schöne Feiertage. Gut rutsch ins neue Jahr.